So, we met at a party. Correct. And you told me a story, which uh, I have to admit, I was a little bit the worse for drink. And maybe that's why I believed all of us. <laughs> and I hope I didn't too much drink to exaggerate my story. So I get told stories all the time. It's kind of an occupational hazard. You, you're a journalist, I've got a story for you. And more often than not, they are either scurrilously defamatory or mostly made up. Maybe I should only have believed 80% well, that'd of be probably that. more accurate, yes. And right from the start, Colm O'Brien's story had all of the telltales of being one to just file away and forget about. Except that for whatever reason, it got its hooks into me. In 1969, and I'm not sure, maybe it was the beginning of 1970, there was an old guy called Melis Clune who had decided to research Spanish galleons. Colm and three friends were commissioned by a shadowy civil servant figure called Melis Clune to dive for the wreck of a sunken Spanish Armada galleon. Melis had told the men that the Falcon Blanco was laden with unimaginable wealth when it sank in September 1588. And any plunder that was taken was always transferred by the men of the uh, fleet to the officer ships for safe storage, whether there was gold or jewels or whatever they managed to plunder as they roamed the seas. And yeah, you guessed it, Mellis Clune said that the Falcon Blanco hadn't sunk where everyone thought it had gone down, it had actually struck rocks off Inishbofin Island and he knew exactly where to dive for it. We came across this very large, unusual heap of stones in the middle of nowhere. And to our lack of education, we didn't understand that those galleons actually carried stone ballast. So we floated around through those stones and they were so unusual that I actually picked up a small stone that would fit into the palm of my hand and I took it back up with me. Colm says that he had the stone analysed and it was found to be most probably from Spain. Up ahead, two other members of the team say that they made a much more significant discovery. 40, 50 metres ahead of the stones where we were came across this ginormous anchor, a Spanish-designed anchor. Obviously, you wouldn't be listening to this programme if there was nothing to Colm's story. But there were a huge number of reasons to just smile politely and walk away. On the other hand, though, how many times in your life do you get written into the script of a Robert Louis Stevenson-type swashbuckler? If someone was to hand you a real-life treasure map with a big X on it, you're not really going to turn your back, are you? In 1588, 26 ships of the Spanish Armada sank off the Irish coast. Only six have ever been found. This is Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco. It's a kind of a classic adventure story. I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. Was it lying flat or was it protruding? No, it was lying flat. It can only have come out of the water on the south side of Dublin. That's south side of Dublin, right, yeah. <laughs> Episode 1, X, marks the spot. 
it's a kind of a classic adventure story. Uh, the idea that you're going to find a ship full of Spanish gold is the theme of boyhood dreams. It has another element into it, uh, the war between Catholic Spain and uh, Protestant England, Philip II marrying Mary I of England. She only lasts for about four years, and what does he do then? He tries to, to marry Elizabeth I, but she's not having any of it. The Spanish Armada is a cocktail of pretty heady ingredients, religious war, sunken treasure, and the perverse point of national pride. What the English Navy wasn't able to achieve was done overnight by the Irish weather. So some of the really classic elements that make a good story, the idea of finding, you know, Spanish gold. Greer Ramsey is the curator of archaeology at the Ulster Museum in Belfast. Once every two years, he gets to audit or to literally count the accumulated treasure recovered from the wreck of the Armada ship, the Girona. For example, the 400 gold coins, 700 silver coins. Piles of gold ducats and pieces of eight, thick ropes of gold chain, cameos of lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, and the most exquisite gold salamander encrusted with rubies. In among all the, the gold and silver objects are a number of personal items. And the ring that I really like, it's called the Notengo ring. We're going to get a little bit Johnny, of professional help here. Can you pronounce this? Christine, tell us how you pronounce it. No tengo más que darte. No tengo más que darte? Que darte. Which means I, I have nothing more to give you. Oh... And what so this is it. Everything is in yeah. this ring and my love that comes with it. And if, if, if we look at the ring in detail too, there is almost a little element of a, an Irish clatter ring, of a hand uh, grasping a harp, yes. a heart, I should say, uh, and the inscription, uh, the Nintendo inscription is in the inside. It, we always say it's always a good one to tell on St Valentine's Day. In 1969, when Colm O'Brien and his fellow frogmen arrived on Inish Bothan, it had been just two years since a Belgian diver had discovered the Girona's treasure. Since then, people had got a little bit crazed with tales of Armada gold, and that was my biggest problem with Colm's story. They had found what they believed to be a galleon, and then they had walked away never to dive it again, it's as if Long John Silver showed Jim Hawkins the map with X marking the spot and Hawkins had just said, meh. And you dived off Boffin subsequent to that, yes? We did, yes, we did. Why did you never go back to there? Well, I'll give you a very good reason why we never went back. Because Boffin Island is probably one of the most spectacular and beautiful dive places in the world. I have dived in everywhere from Mauritius in the Indian Ocean to the Cayman Islands to all over Hawaii and anywhere else you can think about. And the spectacular views that are off Inish Boffin is quite incredible. It's a most spectacular dive. I wasn't buying. They must have thought about coming back and exploiting this find commercially. We did do a rough costing of the day. What it would cost to dive on that particular area and put, they'd have to put what was called a barge over it with vacuum pumps to just clear the silt away. Because after 400 years, it's all gone down into the sand, all right? So you won't see anything. You won't see any gold cups just sitting on top of the water. Perhaps a heavy sea might produce that. But it was between 50 to 60,000 pounds in those days to put a barge over it for one week. 
to do a survey of that particular wreck. We decided it was way beyond our amateur means to investigate that particular galleon on a commercial basis. And it just isn't worthwhile. But what Colm had wearied of had fired my imagination, not least because a few phone calls later, I knew something that Colm didn't know in 1969. Okay. Oh, a lot there. This has clearly been here for a really long time. On Inish Bothan, buried behind bushes in the back garden of an empty house and forgotten by most, is an anchor. Wow, I'd say it's, it's well over three metres long at the length of the shaft. There's a ring still intact at the top end there, though it has got a break in it. A massive thing that when I googled images of Spanish Armada anchors looked very similar. Two hundred, two hundred and fifty kilos. In fairness, though, when I googled anchors Battle of Waterloo two hundred years later, they also looked pretty similar. But it's a pretty spectacular-looking lump of metal. But like I say, by this point, the story had got its hooks into me. Why? Because in spite of my better instincts, I wanted Colm's story to be true. I was tired of the default cynicism that journalism forces you to accept as both sword and shield. Just once, it would be a little bit life-affirming if a fanciful story was also true. The first step was to find out how the mysterious Mellis Clune knew where to send the divers. What had he found that had eluded the army of Armada researchers who believed that the Falcon Blanco had sunk 11 miles away from Inishbofen? Hi there, how are you? On day one of their summer holiday on the island, I dragged my kids up the hill to the home of Augustine Coyne on the only slightly dishonest promise of a treasure hunt. I brought my uh, my junior research assistants along with me. I see that, yes. Robin and Anna. How are you? Have you a few minutes for me? I have plenty of time. Augustine was the fisherman who, according to Colm O'Brien, was the man who had sent them to the right spot when Mellis Clune didn't provide them with the sea charts that he had promised or even an approximate place to dive. And they were rumour that there's a wreck over here on the south of Davalon Island, which you can see from your, your vantage point there, that long, low island over there. On this south side... But even though Augustine had formed a strong friendship with Colm O'Brien since 1969, he didn't share Colm's belief about the final resting place of the Falcon Blanco. I think it's just guessing, to be quite honest. I, 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 what evidence is there? How could you... Uh, Without finding a piece of the ship itself, how could you say that it was, you know? Well, the anchor in the back garden that I had been told had been found at the same place that Colm had dived. Augustine said with a kind but slightly pitying smile that that was in fact British from a totally different period of history and had been found some miles away. Somewhere up this, on this side. Several miles Several, away from yes, Davalon. About, about a mile and a half away from Davalon. And as for mysterious Mellis Clune... 
While far from being a serious-minded Armada researcher, Augustine had formed the opinion that Mr. Clune was a bit of an attention-seeking messer. He also was responsible for a, a, a getting an aircraft to fly over Boffin and drop more yeah, supplies to the poor islanders who were kind of marooned and were starving or hungry or something like that. And was there any call or need for no, supplies at, at the time? Not at all. It was just publicity, just, just fun, I'd say. That was all a bit disappointing. The anchor was British, Mellis Clune was a messer, and in 430 years nobody had found any actual evidence of a wreck, according to Augustine. Now, while there is one school of wisdom that suggests you can't beat local knowledge, I wasn't done yet. Two years before the four men had gone on their expedition, a Belgian scuba diver called Robert Stenwy had discovered the wreck of the Girona and its captivating golden salamander precisely because he had ignored all of the supposedly superior local knowledge. As he was described in the local paper, a Belgian frogman would come and discover gold under the eyes of local divers who were ignoring local place names like Port España and Spanish Point. That really was the most remarkable. It, it was, yeah. It, it's the, this is the idea that, you know, you're almost ignoring the local map evidence and deciding to go uh, somewhere else. Stenwee had noticed a local place name, Spanish Point, right beside the giant's causeway. Bizarrely, nobody had ever thought to ask, why is that place called Spanish Point? He did, and he found what was, back then, the most valuable treasure ever recovered from a wreck. Might Mellis Clune have found something similar to get the inside track on the resting place of the Falcon Blanco? What year were you born? From mine. So you were born just, just two years after the Cleggan disaster, yeah? That's right, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. But you must have heard stories about that. Oh, did you, did yeah. Had a terrible impact on the island. What I what I had, yeah. Nine from here. And I think there were 16 in Connemara. But in Cullocks they were. If anyone was going to remember island folklore about the sinking of the Falcon Blanco, it was going to be James Coyne. Revered locally as the keeper of all of the island's folklore, the farcical airdrop episode that Mellis Clune had orchestrated was one that James had a very different perspective on. Oh, that would be before the helicopters now came out. But the, by the way, if the people died, must have it was only an experiment, see what it would work. They put a basket of food and the parachute, and they drop one on a shark, and they drop one on a buffer. It was an experiment, you're saying? It was an experiment, and he was on the plane that day, he told me. That Mellis Clune was? That Mellis Clune. And the idea was to find out if you could do this in bad times in when bad you case, couldn't get a ferry the, across. Boats couldn't cross, yeah. What if Mellis Clune wasn't the fantasist that Augustine had assumed he was? Augustine, after all, had an unconscious bias against the Falcon Blanco story. We are at a point where we are scared of any information about the island going out there at all because <clears throat> the next thing you have all these, this horde of look onlookers and, and chancers and little boats and God knows what. 
Repeatedly, Augustine had expressed gentle misgivings about letting information into the public about the wreck for fear of the kind and number of people who would be attracted to Inish Boffin. Uh, a wreck there, the, the next thing you would have would be some Aegis went out there and a gang of them, like diving under like mad. You, there's, mm. there's no doubt that would keep happening. But if they, if they don't know where it is, then they're wasting their time. And there's nobody from the island rushing out to tell them, oh, no, you're on the wrong side of the island. No, no they'd be encouraging them to fight. Keep going. Keep doing fight. You wouldn't see fit to set them straight on where they should actually be. Mm-mm. Are you sure now you're in the right spot, you know? <laughs> Augustine wasn't consciously trying to misdirect me, but clearly it wasn't in his interest to make it his business to know where the wreck was. So I pressed on to try and find someone who had more direct knowledge of where the anchor in the garden had come from. It had been taken from the water in the 1940s by a fisherman called Paddy O'Halloran. Unfortunately, though, Paddy had died since. But, but where, where had he originally snagged this? I'm going to show you a map now. After a day of knocking on doors, I found two relatives of Paddy O'Halloran's patching up the cooling system of an ageing Massey Ferguson tractor. The wind off the ocean was blowing pretty hard that day, so I had to leave my tape recorder in my backpack, which is why everybody sounds a little bit distant. Yeah. Do you know where the anchor came out of? I hit it over in the hand. Paddy Joe is the late Paddy O'Halloran's son. He wasn't on the trawler that day, but he knew where they had been fishing. And, and um, Ox Island, what it's called, Davalon Island. Davalon, yeah. yeah. So between... The other voice is Paddy O'Halloran's grandson, Quentin. You go over along the south side of Inish Baffin. This was nothing if not a moment of truth for the whole enterprise. In my own mind, I knew if these men didn't point to where the 1969 dive team had gone in the water, well, then it was time to throw in the towel. So independently of each other, I had them put their finger on the map where they thought that Paddy had taken the anchor out of the water. There. Yeah. That's so, somewhere southwest. Both of them identified that spot off Davalon exactly where Colm O'Brien had dived. X marks the spot. One source was good. Two sources would feel a bit more like proper journalism. And James Coyne, the encyclopedia of all of the island's significant events, had talked to Paddy O'Halloran about the anchor. Where did he find it? Well, at Davila. At Davila. At Davila, yeah. yeah. On the south side or the north side? On the south side. They don't travel the north side. They weren't travelling at that time now. Yeah. They... So it can only have come out of the water on the south side of Davila? That's south side of Davila, yeah. South, yeah. Two sources. James Coyne and Paddy Joe O'Halloran said that this Spanish-looking anchor had come from the south side of Davalon, the same place that Colm O'Brien had dived. It didn't prove that the anchor belonged to the Falcon Blanco, never mind whether the Falcon Blanco had unimaginable plundered wealth on board when it sank. But mysterious old Mellis Cloon, whoever he was, had been on to something. The Falcon Blanco was somewhere in the water and there was something off the south side of Davalon. 
on the next episode of Treasure Island. Another find proving that X must mark the spot. Is it here? Yes. Can we see it? Yes. And are the 1969 divers hiding something from everyone? I think they found something, but then they got all secretive. Treasure Island, the hunt for the Falcon Blanco. Reporting by Philip Boucher Hayes and sound engineering for this episode by Brendan Russell. And if you know anything about this particular wreck, please email me. Falcon Blanco, all one word, at rte.ie. Or follow on social media, hashtag Falcon Blanco. <laughs> <laughs>